0: Let's take a few moments to pray together uh, before uh, we read the scriptures, and, and, or before I tell you the story of the scripture, actually. Um, let's pray. God, this morning, as the scriptures are proclaimed and your word is spoken, may we hear with joy what you have to say to us. And may it not just be words that we hear, but may it be words, Lord, that we allow to fall deep into our souls, to plant seeds of justice, transformation, and hope so that we can leave this place, Lord, to make a difference for your glory and in your name. Amen. I'm not going to read the passage uh, to you this morning. I'm just going to tell it to you. Uh, I'm going to tell you the entire story. It's inspired by John chapter 11, verses 32 through 44. So uh, if you have one of these worship bulletins and you want to read the passage of Scripture yourself, you have it. Um, to test out and make sure that I actually did know what I was reading and studying up on. But I'm going to stop at periods of time throughout the telling of this story to talk about some things that I think are really important in it. Um, I did this thing uh, this week... where as I was reading and studying this passage of Scripture that I'm about to tell you the story from, I started kind of thinking about the characters in the story, and who was what, and what they were about. And I'm going to stop and talk about each one of those characters a little bit as I'm telling you this story. But one day, Jesus and his friends, there were the 12 disciples that you hear about often, were hanging out. They had been in a place called Judea, which is where Jerusalem was, and it got really hot. They, the, the people, the leaders in that area got really frustrated and angry with Jesus. And they started plotting and figuring out ways to kill him. And the original plan was to stone him to death. Has anybody ever seen the movie uh, The Stoning of Soraya M? Um, it's kind of like Schindler's List. It's a great movie, but it's not entertaining. And it's the story of a woman in modern times who was stoned to death. And the way that stonings happened and happened is they would bury somebody in the ground with just their head above ground. And then people would gather around them and throw stones at them to kill them. So Jesus knew that there was this plan to stone him to death. And he and his 12 really close friends, they left. And they went to another region in the area. And while they were there hanging out and doing ministry, they were healing some people. They were proclaiming life to people. They got word that one of their other friends, whose name was Lazarus, was really sick. Now, Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. And you'll remember their stories about Mary and Martha also. And so Jesus loved this family, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Now, he got word that Lazarus was sick. And they hung out, Jesus and his friends hung out in the place they were for a few days. And then Jesus um, somehow recognized, knew within his spirit that Lazarus had died. And he said to his 12 friends, he said, let's, let's go. It's time for us to go to Judea because Lazarus is asleep and I need to go wake him up. Well, his, his friends didn't want to go. They were terrified, and it makes a lot of sense why they were terrified now that you know what stoning was about. It wasn't like dodgeball with rocks, right? And they said, Jesus, if Lazarus is just sleeping, he'll wake back up. Like, he's going to wake up. There's no need for us to go back there, because if we go back there, they're going to stone you to death. And Jesus said, you're too literal. I'm not talking about sleep. Lazarus has died. And I'm glad you don't understand everything because I'm going to go back and you're going to see Lazarus raised raised from the dead and then you'll really understand what I'm all about and who God is and what God is all about. And so they went on their way. And as they got close to this place, this little village where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived, Mary and Martha got word that Jesus was on his way and so Martha runs out to meet Jesus. And in my mind's eye, it's like, this trail kind of going through the desert and there's a big tree of some sort and they had stopped there to rest in the shade and Martha meets them there in that shade. And she says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that whatever you ask of God, God does it. And Jesus says, Martha, your brother will be raised from the dead. And she goes, look, I know that. I know he'll be raised from the dead. All of us will be raised from the dead on the last day. And the thing is that, um, that you hear a lot of things in the Bible about Pharisees and Sadducees, right? They were both Jews, they, they were both groups of Jews, and they were scholars, and, and they studied a lot. And their biggest difference is that Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead, just like us, just like Jesus, And Sadducees did not. And so Martha is saying to Jesus, I believe in the resurrection of the dead just like you do. And I know at the end of time, all will be raised from the dead. And Jesus looks at her and I think he smiles and he says, Martha, I am the resurrection. And I am the life. And I am the truth. And whoever believes in me will never die do you believe that? And Mary says this thing that only Peter had ever said before. And Peter's not recorded in the book of John as saying this, by the way. So John says, basically, that Mary was the first, like, proclaimer and understander of who Jesus was. A Martha, I mean. And Martha looks at Jesus and says, I believe. I believe you're the Christ I believe you are the Son of God who came into the world to save us. Then Jesus looks at her and he says, where have you laid him? Well, she leaves and she goes back to their home and she sees Mary. And she goes into the house where Mary is. Mary and Martha, you remember their story. One of them's like a house cleaner and one of them is like crying and anointing his feet with oil and stuff like that. Well, that's Mary, and Mary is back at the house, and she really loves Jesus. And Martha goes, and she says, Mary, the teacher, is, is, he's out there, and he's calling for you. And so she jumps up and hurries out. Now, has anybody ever been in a house, like, right after a funeral that's full of people? No? Yeah, yeah okay. I was just making sure you're still with me. <laughs> this house is full of people. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, their friends are all around and their friends are there to help Mary and Martha and to grieve with them. And when Mary jumps up and leaves in a hurry, all of her friends jump up and go with her. They're concerned about her, and they think she's going to Lazarus' tomb, but she goes out to meet Jesus. Now, Martha goes out to like just kind of see him and, and, and say, like, do the thing that you do. Mary goes out to let him have it. And she says the same words that her sister says, but with a completely different intent. She says, Teacher, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. It's accusatory. She's upset. She's lamenting. And I think that there's a place for that in our world that we don't do enough of. Like, how many of you know someone who has died of cancer? Uh, It's ridiculous. We spend billions of dollars on killing other people. And if we would take just a small portion of that, is it possible that we could cure cancer? And and what's wrong with that picture? Like It's time for us to lament. This is All Saints Day. This is the day that in the mainline Protestant church, we celebrate the fact that there are people behind us who have died, who have continually handed the baton to one another for generation after generation after generation until they handed it to us. And some of them were killed by cancer. I'm not okay with that. Martha goes out there, and she's like the one that's bringing hope, right? Like, there are some of us who, in the face of death, are able to just kind of stay hopeful. And then there are some of us who just are still raw. Our grief is still raw. And that's where Mary is. And she confronts Jesus, and she's like, if you had been here, if you had been here, because you've healed all kinds of people. In fact, some of the Jewish people who were around her said you can see how much he loves Lazarus because his heart was broken when he saw Mary and she confronted him. His heart was broken over it. And they said, you can see how much he loved Lazarus. Why didn't he save him? He, he gave sight to a blind person. He could have done this thing. Like, they're with her. I'm with them. Why didn't he? And she, he looks at her with his heart broken and he says, Mary, where, where have you laid him? And so they go to the tomb. It's a cave. has a stone in front of it. If you know the Easter story, that's pretty familiar. And Jesus gets there and he starts to cry. We don't know why. But he says, roll the stone away. And Martha doesn't want him to. She says, Lord, he's been dead for four days. If you roll the stone away... It's going to smell. That's embarrassing. That's my brother. It's not just some body. It's your friend, Lazarus. Why would you roll the stone away? It's been four days. And I think John, the gospel writer, reiterates that four days thing for a couple of reasons. One, he wants us to know for sure that Lazarus was good and dead. And I think also... Yeah, you can laugh at that, Matt. And I think also... Well, I know also there's this ancient idea from thousands of years ago that when somebody would die, their soul would just kind of be here on earth, and an angel would be with them and take their soul around to see people and to visit people and go to places and do things, and after four days, their soul was gone for good. Now, I don't believe that. I don't believe that's true. I believe when somebody dies, their soul leaves and, and goes to be with God, but But that was the ancient tradition. And so John is speaking to the people who believe that to say, like, it it was over, over. So the stone is rolled away and Jesus yells into the darkness. Lazarus, come out! I don't know if it was immediately. I don't know if it was 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute or so. But eventually, Lazarus comes walking out. His face is covered with a cloth, his body is wrapped up and his hands are tied and his feet are tied, must be loosely because he's still able to walk. And then we meet another character of the story, the character of the bystanders. And Jesus looks at the bystanders and he gives them a command. He says, go untie him and set him free. They're my favorites. Those bystanders are my favorites in this story. Uh, uh, Jesus, obviously. Gotta get the Sunday school answer, right? I love those bystanders. They're just playing this minor role kind of off to the side. They're watching things happen, but they do a big thing. They set someone free. Have you ever walked in the darkness? No, I'm not talking about like a dark hallway when the lights are off. I'm talking about spiritual darkness. It's scary. And once you get into the light and you think back about those dark places and those dark times, it is almost terrifying. Lazarus comes out, Jesus calls him out of the darkness into the light But even when he's in the light, he's still not completely free. It takes somebody else to do it. God relies upon us, the bystanders, to help do the work of resurrection. It's not like God needs us to do it. God could do the whole thing. But there's something about being the people of resurrection and embracing resurrection and helping do the work of resurrection that is life-changing for us also because the Scripture tells us that those people believed From that point they believed. Now some of them were freaked out and they took off and they went and told Caiaphas and then this whole thing starts, it ends up with Jesus' execution. They're wimps. They couldn't deal with the fact that this man can call life out of death. But we can. Because we are those people who have been called out of darkness into light And more than that, we're the ones that Jesus is saying to set them free. Untie them and set them free. Because how many people do you know that have walked in the darkness and now are in the light, but they continually beat themselves up because they've been in the darkness? We can't do that. We can't do that. And here's the gospel. This is the gospel according to Ross. This is If I were going to write down a phrase and say, Uh, The gospel according to Ross, like this is the gospel according to John. If I could put it into one phrase, this is what it would be. And you've heard me say it a thousand times, and I hope you hear me say it a million more. Listen close. And if you don't believe this, let's talk afterwards, and I will argue with you and win using the Bible. All of you attorneys in the room. There is nothing you can do to cause God to love you more. There is nothing that you can do to cause God to love you more. You can't be busy enough. You can't work hard enough. You can't read the scripture enough. You can't memorize enough scriptures. You can't say enough prayers. You can't take communion enough times. You can't go to seminary. You can't do any of those things to cause God to love you more. God loves you. And there's nothing at all that you can do about it. But I think it's also really, really important for those of us who've walked in the darkness and are now in the light to hear this phrase. There is nothing you can do to cause God to love you less. Because, man, we love a good beating. We love to take that whip and just hit ourselves on the back and talk about how bad we've been before and the things that we've done that we're ashamed of. Stop doing that. It doesn't cause God to love you more, and it for sure doesn't cause God to love you less. There is nothing you can do about it. God loves you. But it's even more than that. When I was 17 years old, I was sitting in Epworth United Methodist Church, third row from the back. Raise your hand, third row, from the back. Y'all are all like, that's why we're sitting back here, because we don't want to do that. (laughs) I told you the best students sit up front. Actually, they're in the back. Anyway. Um, Third row from the back, Epworth United Methodist Church. And the preacher made an announcement that he was going to teach a class on Methodism. And I was that kid who needed to be correct. And when between my house and the church that I grew up going to, I would walk past the Church of Christ church. And I dated a Church of Christ girl who told me that uh, I needed to be Church of Christ or I was going to go to hell. And you know what I said back? You can... And I didn't say it. I didn't say it. And so, uh, well, I went to my little Methodist church, but across the street from my little Methodist church was a Baptist church. And in my mind, somebody was right, and that meant other people were wrong. I had this idea that you had to be correct, like there was a correct way to earn God's love or to understand God in a way that caused God to love me more. And so I told my dad, I was like, hey, I wanna take that class. And he was like, all right, let's do it. And so we'd go to this class and I think it was the second week the preacher said these words, God likes you. God likes you. Do you all believe that? That God likes you? Here's, Here's why I know that God likes me. In the scripture, the New Testament is written in Greek. And there are these Latin phrases that we talk about a lot according, like love. Like there's eros love, and there's philos love, and there's, what's the other one, agape love. Like there are all these things, right? Like there are these different kinds of love. But the New Testament isn't written in Latin, it's written in Greek. And there's this Greek term that is used to talk about God's love toward us and it's more like the kind of love that we have for the people that we really really like. And here's the great thing about that. I really like Stuart Davenport. Amen. I really I mean for real I really like him. Preach it. And and there are flaw- <laughs> There are flaws in his life and I see them. Okay, hey, let's not make this about us. No, for real, for real. That's one of the problems we have sometimes is we try to make everything that's happening about us as individuals. This is a communal thing. I really like him. And he's got real flaws in his life. And I don't care. That makes no difference to me. I still like him. That's a big deal. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. But I think it's a bigger deal that God likes you. Not for who you can become and not who, for who you once were, but for who you are right now in this moment. God likes you. There's nothing you can do to cause God to love you more. There's nothing you can do to cause God to love you less. You are loved and you are liked and you are called out of the darkness. And because you know that and you understand that and you believe that, you are the people that Jesus is saying, unbind them and set them free because there are so many people walking around Las Cruces who are called out of the darkness, but they're wrapped up still. They can't get over themselves, and it's our job to unbind them and set them free. It's not our job to love them for who they can become or for who they once were. It's our job to love them, period, exactly who they are right now in this moment. We love them, and that's the gospel. And here's the thing. That sets us free because we don't have to try to change people. Because sometimes evangelism means I'm going to go and I'm going to change this person and help them become who I think they should be. It's not our business who people should be. That's up to God. And we're going to let God do God's thing. And we're going to do our thing. And all Jesus said was unbind them and set them free. Unbind them and set them free. That's our job. And we do it in the name of the Father, Son, and Son.